When I was a kid, there were few monthly events more exciting than getting the American Girl catalog in the mail. I loved American Girl magazine too, but there was something extra special about the catalog. Each one had so many cool things to look at and wish for, and I paged through every edition until it was creased and well-worn. Yeah, American Girl was a pretty big deal. For that reason, I am super excited about today's episode, and I know I'm not alone. We are talking all about the first book in Felicity's collection, entitled, of course, Meet Felicity. Felicity is our colonial gal, and we find her in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1774, where she is fighting against the expectations her community has of her as a young lady. Her mom wants her home working on her embroidery sampler and handwriting and keeping her petticoats neat, but she'd rather be helping her dad at the family's general store, or better yet, riding horses in a pair of men's breeches, which are way more comfortable than a dress. The real object of her affection is Penny, a horse who belongs to Jiggy Nye, a local man with a reputation for drinking too much and abusing his animals. Felicity takes it upon herself to save Penny from Jiggy Nye's evil clutches, and over the course of the book's 70-something pages, we find out whether or not she succeeds. In our conversation about Meet Felicity, my guest and I spend a lot of time discussing the gender politics of Felicity's world. We also discuss the frankness with which the book's author, Valerie Tripp, approaches subjects like drinking and animal abuse, and try to remember if later books in the Felicity series are a little more honest than this one about slavery. Before we get into the specifics of this story in particular, we take the loveliest walk down memory lane, recalling our own personal American Girl stories and considering the evolution of the American Girl brand as a whole. I am hoping to do more American Girl episodes in the future. My guest on episode 84 is Rachel King. Rachel is an editor at Fortune Magazine, overseeing coverage primarily related to travel, luxury, and books. She also runs a personal blog, where she writes mostly about wine, books, and related events in New York. The blog is called Champagne and Fries, and you can find it at www.champagnefries.com. Fun fact, when I left my corporate job for the last time before I embarked on my full-time freelance career, I went to a restaurant near my apartment and sat outside drinking champagne, eating fries, and reading a book. So you can only imagine how excited I was when I stumbled on Rachel's site. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel King and on Instagram at Rachel King 25. Thanks so much to Rachel for reading Meet Felicity and for taking the time to reminisce about her childhood with all things American Girl. Thanks also, of course, to all of you for tuning into this episode and for being part of the SSR family. If you're not already, please be sure to follow along on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it would mean so much to me if you would share this episode to your Instagram story. Take a screenshot on iTunes or wherever you're listening, post it to your story, and tag SSRPod so I can give you a shout out. You could also share in that story what you're doing while you listen to the pod. I love seeing those stories, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate your help in getting the word out about the show. You can also help spread the word by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, and by rocking SSR stickers, bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts. Those are available exclusively at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, and if I do say so myself, they are super cute. Want to take your SSR super fandom to the next level? You can support the show as a Patreon sponsor. Patrons give a few dollars each month to the production of the show in exchange for awards like merch, bonus episodes, input on book selection, newsletters, book club chats, and more. You can give as little as $1 each month. I'm an independent podcaster and don't have the support of a bigger network, so these contributions are a big deal. I am thankful for each and every one. Learn all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. If you are a Patreon sponsor listening to this episode, please know how much I appreciate you. 
I don't know about you, but I also appreciate independent bookstores. My local indie is called Books Are Magic, and it's my favorite place to stumble into. If you enjoy listening to audiobooks, you can support independent bookstores everywhere, or pick your favorite specific shop by listening on Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. As always, SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to get that deal. Over the last few months, I've become a much bigger fan of audiobooks, and it's all thanks to Libro.fm. I love knowing that I'm supporting indie booksellers while I listen. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like this day has been a long time coming. I have had interest about covering an American Girl book since, I want to say like day negative five of the podcast. I mean, people have been asking me to do American Girl forever, and I'm not quite sure why it's taken me so long. But here we are. We are finally coming to the American Girl universe. We are talking about Meet Felicity, and I want to hear all about your background with American Girl in general and with Felicity. Just sort of as like a little disclaimer, though, I just want to say up front, like, I think it's going to be a little tricky because there's almost two conversations to be had here, right? Like, there's this broader American Girl conversation, which I want to have, and then there's the Felicity-specific conversation, which we need to have um, sort of to honor this particular character and this specific book. Um, So I'll say, listeners, like, I have every intention of doing other American Girl books in the future. You might get a little bit more general American Girl talk in this particular episode, just because this is the first time we're going there. Um, But rest assured that I am very excited to one day talk about Samantha and Molly and Addie and Kirsten and all of our other friends. So Rachel, tell me a little bit about your experience with American Girl. I feel like women who grew up around the time that you and I grew up all have like their American Girl story, and I want to hear yours. Yeah, I've always been a very uh, bookish person, and that definitely started with a few different franchises when I was a kid, uh, between Babysitter's Club and Goosebumps. But I think the one I think about most often or maybe influenced some of my later decisions was the American Girl Collection. I was a history major in college, and I've always been into uh, historical fictions, and I think that really started with American Girl. And I know it's sort of like Sex and the City where everybody likes, like, which girl are you? So are you a Felicity or a Samantha or a Kirsten? And uh, Felicity was initially my favorite, although I've, as a kid, I wavered. And now, well, I'm 
I don't really read them anymore. But you don't? Um, That's such a shock to me. <laughs> but definitely Felicity was probably my favorite. She was the one I had the doll of. And I'm from San Francisco. And so when I go home, I still see the doll. My mom kept it, which is understandable considering how much they paid for it. I think they're like a couple hundred dollars for these dolls. And on the one hand, that makes it's, it's good because they did they do last a long time it looks exactly how i looked in 1993 or 94 when we got it save for a few pen marks i must have accidentally left on there at some point but it's also a little creepy that that doll is still in my room i have to be honest <laughs> i think we have some of them lying around at my parents house too so i i totally get it what's strange is i can't find the books i think my mom must have given them away which as an adult now, I understand, but I think in high school, I was pretty upset about this, even still a little bitter. So it was hard. I actually ended up using the Kindle version, very 2020 version of reading uh, American Girl now, because when I looked them up, the art direction is so different, uh, unless you find an old copy, which I think you did based on your Instagram stories. It looks like you had the 90s print. I did. Yeah, I, I dug deep to find it because like you, I saw the new art direction and I just I couldn't get there. Um, although it's beautiful, it's really cool. If the person who designed those books is listening, I mean, they're really pretty, but it's not my American Girl. So yeah. um, okay. I ordered mine from Thrift Books, and my copy came in pretty good condition. So if anybody is looking for copies of those sort of original art books, um, they are they're up there on Thrift Books and in good shape. So yeah, I had all, at least all the Felicity books, and definitely. Samantha and Molly. I think I had Kirsten as well. And I remember that being my mom's favorite because she is also an immigrant. And even though she did not immigrate from Europe, she related to that part, that detail in the story. And Addie was definitely the last one I read because that's when I started. By the time they released her books, I was starting to age out of the category. I was still be reading Babysitter's Club and Goosebumps and some other 90s YA books for a while, even though I still like YA books now. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, that. Uh, so when the char- beyond those characters, I know they've added so many and they've also, not all of them are historically tied anymore. So those are really the core five that I can remember and try to remember their stories. Yeah, so there is such a history to this franchise, to this company, to these books and these dolls and the whole thing, which maybe we'll touch on throughout the conversation because I think it's it's interesting, especially if you were born anywhere near the time that you and I were born. My American Girl story is that I, like many a 90s girl, was also very into the American Girl franchise. I came to it through the dolls, not the books. I had a grandmother who was really generous about giving us the dolls. I um, grew up with a lot of cousins that were kind of around the same age as I am. And there were four or five girls that were within like three or four years of each other. And every year our grandmother would get us a different doll, um, which like, again, that's so generous. And I actually um, had sort of married into this family. Um, This was my stepmom's family. And I was really young when I came into all of this. And it was like really fun to be part of this big group of cousins. And we all got our dolls at Christmas time. It was just great. And so Samantha was my first doll. I was one of the only brunettes in the family. So um, the brunettes all got Samantha or Molly. And then the blondes got Kirsten and Felicity the first year. And that changed over time. Like eventually we each had three or four dolls. 
but because I, I'm from a divorced family and have several grandparents, um, I think maybe one of my other grandparents got me a doll one year and maybe my mom, you know, there were a lot of people kind of like fueling my love for this franchise. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I had this like little collection of American Girl dolls <laughs> because they were really expensive. They cost in 1986 when the, when the dolls started production, this, the bundle of the doll and the book cost $82. And if you factor in inflation, according to Fast Company, that's $150 in 2020. So we're not talking small bucks here. We're talking big bucks. But it was like the special thing that my family did every year. And I think it was a few years later that I figured out that that the books were like something I might be interested in. I was always a reader, but I think that for some reason, like the excitement of like getting the dolls on Christmas and like playing them with my cousins, like the book was just never the first thing that I grabbed of the set because you always got like the meat book along with the doll. Um, But we were all like playing with the accessories and the clothes and the horses and like all the things that came with the dolls. So I almost feel like by the time I came to the books, I had aged out of them a little too because they are written really young. They're each like 70 pages. But I did read them. Like I think eventually I read the books that belonged to the dolls that I didn't even have just because I really enjoyed the historical fiction and the writing. The writing is actually really beautiful. I was kind of surprised. I don't know if you felt that way. Yeah. I was like surprised coming to it as an adult that they were really beautifully written. There are various authors, but I think the majority of the ones that were written in the early 90s were written by a woman named Valerie Tripp. Um, And I think she's a great author. So I really liked them, but I sort of made my way through the books based on what was available in the library. I too think I came to Addie last, and I say that um, sort of embarrassed because I I think that was largely because as a white little girl, I was not necessarily handed those books. I didn't receive that doll. Um, And I wished that I had read that book earlier because I think that one really has a lot of historical meat to it based on what I've read um, and sort of brushed up on in preparation for our conversation. So I did get there eventually, but uh, I am ashamed to say that it was not the set that I read first um, or even like shortly after that. So I, I did love this franchise as a whole. I remember my mom feeling really strongly that this was a great thing for girls because it, it was opposite to Barbie, which is kind of ironic given that in 1998, Mattel bought American Girl, which I don't think my mom knew at the time because she always talked about how like this is so much better than Barbie. But I was like really encouraged to enjoy American Girl and like we would go to American Girl Place. One of my favorite memories growing up is when my mom and I made a weekend of going to Chicago. I was probably 12 or 13 and I think American Girl Place was still really new. So it was a huge deal. Like now there's, I feel like there are a lot of them in like random malls all over the country. But back then there was only one. And so my mom and I spent this weekend together and we went to American Girl Place and it was just like the most magical, fun adventure. So it is really special to me and it was fun to come back to this book. I was a little nervous about it um, and I, I was kind of scared to see what was online. And I'm happy to say that like I would say that like the brand is sort of dying, but there's not a ton of like critical stuff out there about the book. Yeah, I agree. The in the part about Mattel, it's almost like the Mattel influence has not been intentional in terms of Barbie, but it does as we were talking about the art direction of the books. The books feel a lot more like some of the Barbie books or that par- like that kind of style of packaging. Yes. It's just a lot more flashier colors, so they pop off a stand in a retail store. And between that and then, say, the they have the American Girl experience as well in New York City, and I, like you said, in other places, and I think there's a lot of focus now more on the retail aspect rather than what differentiated American Girls to begin with, which was the 
historical aspect of it, like define these girls defining different periods in American history. And I think that I'm, I don't exactly know why their sales are down, but I, like I, we were talking about that Fast Company article as well. It's questionable, like which direction they want to take the brand in because it seems like they're at a crossroads, if not a stalemate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I read some stats and, and I'm going to include a link to this Fast Company article in the show notes for this episode because I have a feeling that we're going to be referencing it a lot. Um, there's some interesting statistics and numbers that sort of show the trajectory of the business as a whole, but there's also really cool perspectives from different kinds of people on how the brand has changed and developed and like the best ways that the company might be able to move forward so that they actually have some growth in the future. Um, but just for reference, it looks like sales dropped 32% in the first quarter of 2019 as compared to the first quarter of 2018. They dropped 22% in the second quarter of 2019 as compared to the same period in 2018. Um, and it's just kind of been on a steady decline over the last couple of years. The article, of course, references things like electronics and like that obviously sort of being the hot toy that most kids want, things that are a little bit flashier and like a doll maybe isn't quite as appealing. Of course, American Girl has like YouTube channels and like all kinds of other things to try to like propel the storytelling in different kinds of ways. But I can imagine that for a company that was originally driven by dolls, that would be a challenge to keep up with some of the new the new stuff that's coming out. But there's a lot of really cool stories and blogs and essays and thought pieces out there about like women who grew up in the American Girl era who want to share these stories with their daughters now because they, they see the power in them and like this lesson about how everybody has the power to be part of history and take responsibility for what goes on around them. Um, and it's actually just like kind of a bummer because they can't find the books as easily. Like you and I were saying, we can't find these classic editions. I, I think I've seen the books with the new art, of course, like on shelves at Barnes and Noble. So they are relatively available, but I just don't know that this new packaging like calls to women the same way because so much of it is in the nostalgia. And I think women like really want to share these stories with their children in kind of the same package that they received it in. But the challenge really is like trying to appeal to the women who loved these books as kids that are now mothers without losing the attention of kids who are growing up in like a much different media landscape. So it is an interesting challenge for them. And I, I can't help but like just think of my seven-year-old self being so receptive to my mom's messaging about how this was different than Barbie and thinking about like, I wonder, you know, what how this would have developed differently if Mattel hadn't hadn't bought the brand, but it probably would have died because, of course, Mattel bought it for a ton of money and has been storing it really well in a lot of ways. So it's just interesting. Um, it does make me sad, though, because so many of my like best childhood memories are of playing with my American Girl dolls. And I hope that that they're still going. I didn't know that a lot of the historical dolls actually get retired. So they like kind of choose different dolls to rotate in and out. It's sort of like the Disney vault that way. So in 2010, I believe there was a press release I found about how they were retiring the Felicity doll. So you can still buy the books, but she's no longer in the catalog or on the website. Um, do you remember getting the American Girl catalogs, by the way? They were the yeah. best. I mean, it was like I'm reading a magazine oh my because gosh. there was just so much to look at. And it was the art direction was just so much fun. I mean, it's pretty basic if you look at it now, although I probably would enjoy looking at it now just because I haven't seen one in about 20 years. Yeah. It's sort of the Scholastic Book Club pamphlets you get at school before ordering your books. Like there's something about that layout as dense as it was. I would just read it cover to cover. I wanted everything. And I was not even like a doll girl. Like outside of American Girl, I wasn't into dolls, but there was something about 
American Girl. They were great marketers. I will say that for them. I wanted everything. I wanted to match with my doll. I wanted to have all of the furniture. Um, I think I got into a lot of their sort of like sub brands. I remember at one point they had these like little dogs that had dog houses and I had one of those. (laughs) I just, I bought into it all. I ate it up and not to make it about me, but I will say that my very first byline was an American Girl magazine. Oh, that's incredible. I know. Well, it was it was sort of dramatic because I responded to one of those. Remember how they had like they would put out questions and then in the first like three or four spreads of the magazine, it would be little quotes from different girls who submitted their answers. And there were like caricature cartoons with pictures of the girls. So I was featured in that and I had answered one of the questions, but I was, I loved writing from a very young age and I responded to the question with like two full pages of advice and experience. And so when they called, cause of course they called my, my landline to tell us that I was going to be in the magazine and my mom was like, yeah, they're going to pull out like two or three sentences. It's so exciting. I had a freaking meltdown because I thought that like my full article was going to appear and it was two sentences, but of course, like it was still a very big moment when the magazine came and it was embarrassing because my mom like sent it to everybody and we had so many copies, but that's another reason that I have a special tie to American Girl because I am a professional writer now um, and that's kind of where it all started, which which feels special. That still seems valid to include, say, on LinkedIn or somewhere, <laughs> a resume, it's like you've had words in such and such magazines. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should add it to my clips. I haven't yet, but I'm thinking that maybe I should revise. It's still in print, no? I'm not sure, but I vaguely remember seeing it somewhere, if not at least online. I'm going to try to find it because I have a feeling that the the paper copies we had were probably lost during some move, but it has to be somewhere. So that's going to become my mission for the next couple of months. Thank you for the inspiration, Rachel. Yes. (laughs) So let's talk about Felicity. Felicity was one of the early girls in the collection. The company started in 1986, and this book, Meet Felicity, was published in 1991, so very shortly after. Um, Meet Felicity is, of course, the first book in the Felicity series. I couldn't remember exactly how it went, but after doing a little bit of research today, I remembered that there was sort of this consistent five-book rotation that every doll went through. So there was Meet Felicity, Felicity learns a lesson, Felicity surprise, happy birthday Felicity, Felicity saves the day and changes for Felicity. And each of the dolls, or at least each of the historical dolls that were around when I was growing up had those same six titles with their names included. So you could kind of read through and you knew what to expect from each of these books. And I think the last title in that rotation, changes for Felicity or changes for Samantha or changes for whoever, always kind of like indicated maybe how they're going to be growing up after the series after they moved on from American Girl Land. So that was kind of nice. I remember liking the routine of that, like knowing exactly what you were going to get from each book. And before we really like dig into Felicity's story, can you share a little bit, Rachel, about why you opted for Felicity? Because we we went back and forth about which of the characters we wanted to focus on. Definitely. So I, I mean, there are tons of books I love from the early 90s, but definitely American Girl was up there like we were talking about the catalog. Um, I probably enjoyed the catalog more than the dolls or anything. Thing like that. I almost enjoyed as much as the books. And I remember the books sometimes also came with um, little activity guides. Yeah. I think there were things like crossword puzzles, but also like exercises where you would 
write down words you learn from the books and little historical details you might have learned. And Felicity was just one where I think it was just that when I was a kid, that was a period, time period where I, I was really fascinated by. And I went to Colonial Williamsburg as a kid. And reading it now as an adult and thinking about that as my favorite time period back then, it's definitely something I have mixed feelings about. But it was one that I wanted to revisit and see maybe how I would feel about reading some of the events that occurred and also the way some of the characters are described or included or not included for various political and historical reasons. So that's why I was most interested in revisiting Felicity. Yeah, I I echo everything that you've said. I was sort of surprised by how little we get of some of the other characters that I think you're referencing in this book. Mm -hmm. And we don't get much reference to some of the political situations. So listeners, for reference, this book takes place in 1774. Felicity is a nine-year-old living in Williamsburg, Virginia. So you can kind of get a sense there of the kind of world that she's living in. After doing a little bit of research today, I was reminded of the fact that Felicity and her family, the Merrimans, are patriots. So they really are in favor of breaking ties with Great Britain and the king. But we don't really get any of that in this first book. I was also reminded of the fact that later on in her series of books, Felicity meets her best friend Elizabeth, whose family are loyalists. And so that's, I think, probably where we get a little bit more of the political tension. But I would be curious to read more about that, because what we're getting in this first book is really like an intro to Felicity and her family. And you kind of get a sense of what characters might be popping in and out going forward. But there's not as much. So I think it's worth mentioning that like we're probably going to be able to get more political context from other books. That being said, we can obviously like mention that as part of our conversation today. I was also fascinated by Colonial Williamsburg when I was a kid. We went a lot of times because I liked it so much. Um, I talked about this a little bit on the episode we did about the book Running Out of Time, which I'll link in the show notes for this episode. But I just thought it was really cool to, to see that there were people like acting out this life that was so different from mine. I also thought that the American Revolutionary period was really interesting. Um, And as an adult, I'm a huge Hamilton fan, so maybe there are some ties there. Uh, I don't know. That's sort of like the Felicity basic fun facts um, about her, where she's living, how she's living, a little bit of the political standpoint of her family. One of my favorite things about opening this book for the first time was that we get that character guide. I don't know if any listeners remember in these American Girl books, the first full spread uh, inside the book is like this series of little watercolor portraits of all of the key characters in the book. So in this one, it's Felicity and her family. And that just like brought back all these warm fuzzies of like that feeling of starting a new American Girl series, meeting the girl's family and friends. And also just that like visual reminder that the girl gets to be at the center of the story like Felicity is she's not at the top she's literally smack in the middle of that character guide and no matter what else about these books has changed or no matter how we might feel about them looking back I think it's worth mentioning that it's still really cool to me that this is a series and a franchise that ensured that girls got to be at the center of their own stories in these very important historical periods. I totally agree. And I love the those intro portraits. The artwork and the illustration in these books all across all of them are amazing. And they add to the story so much and that those intros change with each book, get new characters. Although I did find that, I, at least in Meet Felicity, I found the introductions, the way the characters are introduced to be interesting. I remember being put off a little bit reading it this weekend with the introduction of Marcus. Mm-hmm. And he's the only um, black character in the story, at least in this first book. And he's really only referenced once. He 
I know he becomes plays a larger role in the subsequent books, but there he's described in the opening as a helper, I think, of some kind. But I, I feel like as an adult, you definitely know that he's not there as an employee or as a helper. He's definitely there as a slave. Yeah, excuse any page turning, but I will, I'll go ahead and read that just because I, I think you're right. I think that's what the wording was. It says, Marcus, the man who helps Mr. Merriman at home and at the store. Yeah, and it's just uh, somewhere between whitewashing and revisionist history, and I found that to be a little odd. I mean, yes, it's a children's book, but it's a historical children's book, and I don't think that's something that should be erased. And it's not, to be fair, it's not totally, because when I was reading the notes at the end of the book, there is an explanation about slavery during this time period and in the colony of Virginia and just how that does play a role in these stories. But it's a little weird that it comes at the end of the book after you've read it and it makes less of an impact than if you go into the story knowing that. Yeah, I agree. I think there are two other reasons that I think it's kind of strange that we don't get a clear picture of him up front. The first is that it's not as if the author here is hiding girls from a lot of other harsh realities of the time period. Less so in Meet Felicity because, like, at least in this book, we're not getting the full weight of some of the bigger picture problems that she's dealing with. Though there is this villain in Jiggy Nye who we get, like, a lot of truths about him. We find out that he drinks too much rum and that he abuses his animals and he's making these pretty scary threats to Felicity and her family. So it's not as if readers are being shielded from a lot of the realities of the things that girls in this time period might have faced. The other reason that I think it's sort of strange is that in a very positive way, I think, as as upsetting as it is, the author of the Addie books is much more honest, almost like painfully honest about what went on um, for people who were enslaved during Addie's time. I, I didn't remember exactly what the plot of Addie's books was, but to sum it up, because I, I did find a brief summary of it while I was researching for our conversation today, Addie is a slave. Uh, her her brother and her father, I believe, were sold to another plantation, and then and then she runs away with her mom, leaving her baby sister behind. They can try to find freedom. Like there are some very real depictions of what it, it may have been like for people going through that experience. So um, I don't know if it's because Felicity's books were written earlier and maybe they were kind of feeling out like what they were going to be ready to express, but it does seem as though Marcus, at least in this first book, has been like written out of the story. But I, I don't quite remember like what the relationship with his family grows into throughout the series. Yeah, I want the part you mentioned about um, Jiggy Nye, I was a little even taken aback as an adult realizing they're pretty explicit about him being an alcoholic, which I feel like to a child that would actually be a little bit more, I don't know, so something a more delicate conversation. He also uses, at least for their time and for these books, like calls Felicity some really terrible things. But And you can tell it's like he calls it her those things because she's a little girl and so between that and certain activities Felicity is allowed to do and not to do they do scratch the surface of gender politics and what her role society is expected to be and how she rebels against that um, and I know looking at the preview for Felicity learns a lesson in the second book she uh, starts to I don't know if it's finishing school but more like tea lessons and things things that women are expected to do when they uh, grow up and get married yeah, let's talk more about the gender politics because that is really like kind of the overarching voice in this book yeah. is this sense of like Felicity 
trying to navigate the things that she's quote unquote supposed to do versus the things that she's not, the things that she's allowed to do versus the things that she's not. Like a lot of the other American girls, Felicity is billed early on as spunky, independent, feisty, all of those words. And those traits do not make it easy for her to kind of like go with the flow and do the things that her mother in particular would like her to do. The expectations of her that she like stay at home and help her mom bake. Uh, There's all of this talk about a sampler, which I I kind of forgot was a thing in these books, but it's a big thing. And and when I thought a little bit more about it and, and I pulled out one of the quotes that comes from their gossipy neighbor, Mrs. Fitchett, she asks, are you working on your sampler of stitches to show them how well you sew? And they is in reference to like potential suitors. Um, so it's like, I guess the sampler is, is this like proof maybe to future husbands that you have quote unquote womanly skills. So she's supposed to be working on that. She's nine years old. Even the idea of her like helping out at her father's store, which is hardly like this rough and tumble activity is viewed as as unwomanly um, and she's she's meant to be home and not even just like greeting customers at the store yeah yeah I can't for the life of me figure out what the sampler is supposed to do beyond maybe impressing your future in-laws yeah. or you can hem a pair of pants or what, what was it uh not bloomers but what do they call um, the petticoats maybe yeah. or the stays which is sort of like a corset no um Ben's pants, that the pantaloons. Oh, breeches. Breeches. That's it. Yes. Uh, maybe that she can do that. Even in the way some of the characters are just their character roles, like Mrs. Fidget, it's obviously an old lady is the gossip. And while both of Felicity's parents are very kind to her and admittedly patient with her being a feisty running around nine-year-old, her dad is the one who's painted as very calm and wants to listen to her while her mom is almost like always exasperated by her and to be fair I'm sure her her mom is exasperated with those three kids like as she should be but it's that's the only way she's depicted is kind of just tired with Felicity and snaps more whereas her father is the patient more loving fun parent yeah and she adores her father I mean and I think she she doesn't seem to have any like real tension with her mother either but we get a much clearer sense of this adoration that she has for her father, and she's so impressed by his store. She talks about how her father's store is the finest store in Williamsburg, and probably the finest store in all 13 colonies. The King of England himself didn't go to a better shop in London, Felicity was sure. So she's like very enamored with her father in a way that I think like is pretty common in all kinds of pop culture, like this whole daddy's girl trope. That's mm-hmm. definitely who Felicity is set up to be, and I think partially because it's like if she were to be more attached to her mother, then it would have maybe made sense for her to be a little bit more drawn to like sewing and cooking and all of those things. Obviously, the fact that she's closer to her father, I think, is meant to be a cue to readers that like she wants to be out and doing other things. And in contrast to Felicity is her younger sister, Nan, who's six. And I would say the only time that their mom isn't exasperated is when she's talking about Nan and how good Nan is at stitching and like doing all of the things that Felicity is supposed to be good at, even things like handwriting, like Felicity's failure to sort of be more patient with getting better at handwriting is almost this like character flaw, which is so bizarre. I almost wish they didn't lean into that first because the daddy's world trope is just so kind of gross, especially I feel like today it's just it was outdated then, but it's outdated now. And it, I feel like Felicity is just such a better character than that. She deserves better. She's I could see Nan, you know, going all in on like the colonial like 
society lifestyle, whereas Felicity, I just picture her growing up and moving to Massachusetts to like work with Abigail Adams when she gets older. Just She just doesn't belong there. She yeah. could do so much. I found this really fun article on Huffington Post called Five Lessons the American Girl Books Taught Us About Feminism. And one of them is focused on this conversation about Felicity. And the lesson itself is don't let gender roles get you down, which I think is like very apt, makes sense. And a few other quotes that I pulled out. In her most feminist act, she sets into independence free. We'll talk about that later, but independence is of course the horse. Felicity sees oppression and injustice and actually does something about it. Does it even get more badass than that? She also says in this article, Felicity didn't let anyone stop her from following her heart. If she were around today, she'd probably appreciate the many rights that women have gained since her time. But even though our society is more equal now than in her time, Felicity's story still applies to modern women. Felicity taught us that nothing, not even the most established gender stereotypes can hold down a determined girl with a free spirit. I'd agree with all those lessons. I, I was expecting going into reading Meet Felicity that I was like, oh no, this is going to be problematic or there's going to be something that I, I didn't pick up on as a kid and I picked up now. But I was, I don't know if it's, um, maybe it's a tribute to how good of a writer Valerie Tripp is because between just the narrative style and also the content in the first book, I, with the exception of what we were talking about with the intros and certain character roles, I think this book did hold up in the like conveying those lessons even from the first book. And she does a surprisingly good job of building tension through five chapters that must have been like, what, 30 pages? Yeah, it was so short. I read it in maybe an hour. It was so I quick. Was, I was seriously tempted to just, just get the, the subsequent five books, <laughs> even though I was like, I know these stories. Like, why should I get all of these books again? It's a little silly when I have so many other books to read. But I was like, wow, okay, maybe because I, I don't have kids, but I have nieces. And I was like, well, before rereading this, I was like, I don't know if I'd actually want to share these books because, you know, maybe they have just different ideals that, you know, like how people don't like want to share dolls, like, or like expose their daughters to only princess material or only Barbie material. It's like, well, no, actually, these books actually do have a lot of lessons still that I think are kind of timeless. I think they're also really well-rounded in contrast to a lot of the other franchises that you mentioned. And I think that there's like sort of a sense of import about what they're doing that also sets it apart. I found an article in the Washington Post um, that kind of is like a nostalgic look at American Girl and and kind of doing what you and I are doing and looking at them um, from an adult perspective. Uh, one of the quotes that I pulled out from there is the girls in the books are doing things that matter, such as writing a community newspaper kit or using Title IX to get a spot on the boys' basketball team at school. Go Julie. I don't know who Julie is, but great Julie. The characters aren't running around in trashy clothes and getting cheap laughs by being rude or disrespectful toward adults. They aren't plotting ways to get attention from boys and they aren't engaged in mean girl antics. They're too busy solving problems with friends and family to be bothered with that kind of nonsense. And while I, I don't love the wording of that, like I'm not crazy about this whole thing with like trashy clothes and getting attention from boys because I think that's sort of like a cheap way to describe a lot of depictions of, of young girls in pop culture. I do feel like the heart of that resonates for me. Like I think what's what's really cool about American Girl is that young readers can get a sense of like their place in history and the fact that like even just going about your daily life, no matter where or when you're living, there's possibility for you to make a difference and sort of like have an impact. Definitely. Speaking on the point about uh how girls relationships are depicted in these books. I did re I did really appreciate that girls are friends in these books. Like each of the main characters has a best friend, sort of like, you know, like Anne Shirley and Diana Barry and Anna Green Gables, like Felicity and Elizabeth are best friends. I know uh, Samantha has a best friend. I remember she works in the factory. But I Nellie. 
Nellie, yes, that's it. I believe Molly also had a best friend. Yeah, I, fr- I feel like maybe the best friend moves away. I feel like there was maybe some more interpersonal stuff yeah. with Molly. Like there was tension with her friend maybe. That one, I think so, because I think the friend moved from England, those children who were evacuated, and I think they posted a couple kids. Speaking on the boys and girls relationships, I took a creative writing class in college, and I remember thinking, I was like, oh, maybe I should do something like an American Girl story, because it was supposed to be a short story, and I remember looking distinctly at the American Girl website for wannabe authors who wanted to pitch stories, and I specifically remember... uh, guidelines saying no romantic stories or hints or anything, which is hilarious because the first thing I thought then, and then I remember thinking now is like, I was like, oh, come on, Felicity and Ben are totally going to get together when they're older. Seriously. (laughs) And then it happened, like they become even closer. I know in the subsequent books, like the Felicity Saves the Day, there's some, I think because Ben, he's a little older and he becomes a little bit, sorry, spoilers, he's a little more involved with the, uh, the revolution than anyone else in the family at that point. And so I think he's like on the run and Felicity helps him. Like she saves the day, but like, I don't know, I think saving his life. I was like, oh, come on. How is that not romantic? (laughs) Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a movie adaptation um, in 2005 starring Shailene Woodley. Did you know about this? I remember there being a movie, but I I did not know it was Shailene. Yeah, which is, in hindsight, hilarious. Yeah. You know, given, like, the way Shailene's career has evolved, and now she's, like, super political and involved in all these other things. I saw it because I have sisters that are much younger than I am, and so in 2005, even though I was a teenager, I think we watched it together. And I think there's, like, kind of a lot of sexual tension between Felicity and Ben in the adaptation, I mean, obviously, they're still depicted as young. I don't know that she's nine. I think she's maybe a couple of years older. Oh, but boy. they go to, like, a <laughs> ball together. Like, there's just this sense of something building. I watched the trailer this morning, actually, before you and I started talking, just because I was curious. And even in the trailer, I, I picked up on the fact that it seemed like they were setting that up a little bit in the movie, which I guess makes sense in a movie adaptation. But another interesting fact about the movie, because when I Googled it, I discovered that it's premiering on a service called Pure Flix starting in March. Um, and Pure Flix is like the Christian equivalent to Netflix. So it seems like these American Girl adaptations have been adopted maybe by like the evangelical set more recently. So that's just kind of like a fun fact. Yeah, I did not know about that connection. Although I definitely need to look up the trailer for this movie if try to find uh, some way to stream it. I do remember seeing the Molly and Samantha movies. I know those came out around the time we were in college as well, like 2004, 2005. And I think they're released to like Hallmark or Lifetime because I I remember them not being that hard to watch. Somehow we were able to watch them in college. A couple of us were like, wow, do you remember this? And like a couple of different history majors and I definitely watched those two movies. Oh my gosh, that would have been so fun with a bunch of history majors. Yeah. So It definitely explains why, partially why I probably became a history major is like books like this that just influenced my love for reading and for history and stamina for reading a lot. (laughs) Sure, I'm sure. So something else that I thought we might want to talk about with respect to the gender politics of this book um, are some of the statements that Felicity makes about how she wishes that she could be a boy. And it's it's a conversation that comes up now and then on SSR, um, just in terms of the way statements like that would probably be interpreted so differently in a book that was written in 2020, as opposed to a book that was written like this in the early 90s or the late 80s. Um, I'll, I'll share a couple of the excerpts that I pulled out, um, because we, as we've been talking about, Felicity 
publicity is really frustrated by the constraints of being a young woman in this time period. And she makes it very clear that she wants to break free from that. She says to Ben, who we've we've mentioned but is the apprentice of the Merriman family, she says, it's very tiresome to be a girl sometimes. There are so many things the young lady must not do. I'm told the same things over and over again. Don't talk too loud. Don't walk too loud. Don't fidget. Don't dirty your hands. Don't be impatient. It's very hard. You're lucky to be a lad. You can do whatever you like. Um, and then there's also a lot of conversation about the clothing that she wears. So Felicity's mission throughout the course of the book is to free this horse that she's like adopted emotionally. The horse is Independence, um, but Felicity calls her Penny. She's named her Penny both because she is the color of a copper penny and because Ben reminds her that Penny could, could be a nickname for Independence, which is obviously something that they as a community are fighting for and thinking a lot about. But in order to really like kind of attack this problem and be able to ride Penny and like sneak out in the middle of the night as she has to do in order to win Penny's trust. She doesn't want to wear her petticoats and her skirts anymore. She decides to steal Ben's breeches um, and wear them in the middle of the night to go on her like secret tasks. And she says again to Ben, oh, I wish I could wear breeches. Gowns and petticoats are so bothersome. I'm forever stepping on my hem and tripping unless I take little baby steps. Small steps are supposed to look ladylike anywhere. Tis a terrible bother. In breeches, your legs are free. You can straddle horses, jump over fences, run as fast as you wish. You can do anything. And I had to sort of stop myself because I think it's so easy in 2020 in the age of these really important conversations that we're having about gender and gender identity to be like, what's what do we interpret here? Like, what's Felicity really trying to say? And maybe there was a touch of that in Valerie Tripp's writing. Maybe she wondered if, if maybe there were some questions going on with Felicity about her gender identity. But I really had to hold back and like overthinking that because Felicity's just frustrated and wouldn't anybody be like if so many of the things that they're told to do and not to do are because of something that's completely out of their control. Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting interpretation. And if the book was written now, I I agree with you. I would totally possibly read into it that way. Unfortunately, I don't really want to give them the credit for considering, like we mentioned, like it's there were conservative guidelines into writing it. So I doubt that that was even unless it was extremely subtle, almost like an Easter egg. And I still, I just still don't necessarily think they deserve to like have that much credit for thinking that deeply into it. I did uh, actually highlight the same passage you mentioned before where she's talking to Ben first about like the things she doesn't want, she can't do like fidget and whatnot. And she's like, you're so lucky because you're a boy. But the reason I highlight is because what he responds to her after saying like, well, he says something to the effect is like, I have it really hard too. And in my 2020 reaction, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about the young white male saying he has it just as hard as her. Because he definitely, sure, they both have roles in society and expectations upon them, even at a young age. But he definitely has a lot more freedom, liberties, especially once the United States becomes its own country and the Bill of Rights and everything in the Constitution applies to him, but not to her. Yeah. So... I like it's, it's a little bit, little bit of privilege, which is surprising because with the rest of his character, he's actually quite a good listener to her. He said he's the only one who's kind of receptive to what she wants to do about Penny, even even though he sure he tries to talk her down a little bit too. But possibly because they're around the same age and he's a bit younger, like not like her parents, so he's probably a little more willing to break the rules. But he does listen to her more than maybe anybody else does. I had a similar reaction to you to his response to her statement about you know feeling so limited, and and he was kind of trying to relate to her but it's just not the same thing because as you said like his rights are are much different than hers I think that maybe what the author was trying to convey was that like it can be so easy for anyone particularly maybe like 
a young girl or, or any young child gets so wrapped up in like what they can't do and in their own problems that they can't see past past it and can't necessarily relate to other people. I think that something that is sort of hinted at is the fact that Ben is really lonely because he's like staying with Felicity's family. He's not from Williamsburg. He doesn't really know anyone. And so as easy as it is for Felicity to be like, oh, well, you're a boy, so everything's easy. He has some other struggles. Obviously, like being lonely and wanting to make friends is a much different kind of problem than not having equal rights to men. But I think that the idea is that like you never really know somebody's struggle and that it's really easy to make assumptions that somebody who's different than you has everything that you want. But often like there's much more going on below the surface. Agreed. Let's talk a little bit about Jiggy and I. So we've talked about Penny, who is this horse. Felicity meets Penny because she goes with Ben to um, deliver a an order from the store to Jiggy and I, who he's a tanner in town, which I believe means that he makes leather. Um, so he is like basically re- around to like raise animals and kill them and then use their hides for leather. Is, is that a correct assessment of what a tanner does or am I totally off base? I think that sounds correct because they also repeatedly talked about how about the smell was yeah and they talk about how he treats his animals really poorly and and while I think that there's of course an argument to be made that like anybody who does this kind of work is treating their animals poorly I'm sure there are other approaches where maybe you could be at least kinder to them while you're raising them he clearly is abusive to them from day one um and felicity's father especially is like very judgmental about this he says he's like the worst kind of man because he abuses his horses so there's a really big value placed in the merriman family on animals and on treating animals well you can tell that felicity's been raised to like know and love and respect horses um and so when she gets a chance to go with ben to drop this order off at jiggy eyes and she sees this horse that Jiggy has has recently come into possession of she's just like completely taken with with her and uh, although Jiggy hasn't named her Felicity takes it upon herself to like sort of build this identity for the horse um, Jiggy is clearly treating her very poorly he feels as though she's going to be impossible to tame he doesn't believe that he'll ever be able to ride her which which makes her useless to him um, and so he's threatening to kill her and uh, but also to like give her to anybody who can ride her. And Felicity takes that very seriously because she begins to hear Jiggy yelling at the horse. And she's like, oh, well, if you're saying that anybody who can ride her can have her, then I'll just figure out how to ride her and then I'll take her, which is such like a nine-year-old mindset. And I kind of loved that simplicity and just like the level of of literalness (laughs) in Felicity's interpretation. And that's why she takes it upon herself to sneak out every night. Um, She at first kind of just like gets to know Penny from afar. She brings her apples and like lets Penny get comfortable. And as she says, she kind of lets Penny lead the way and like sort of follows Penny's lead um, on when she's going to be comfortable letting Felicity get closer or letting her ride her. And I think in that way Penny is is meant to be like a metaphor for Felicity because she wants to be free and she feels stuck in this pasture when she's really meant to be running out on her own but I think that Felicity kind of wishes that she could dictate the way that people treat her and approach her in the way that Penny can. I agree I didn't think about actually Penny representing Felicity I think that's a really good insight. Jiggy and I um, I know we were talking about the movie and I I know there was a movie already but I they can't read a movie or I just imagine him as the actor who played Argus Filch in Harry Potter. Yes also played Walder Frey in Game of Thrones and so for Game of Thrones fans like 
definitely one of the worst villains of the entire uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. And so I, I thought, I mean, he's just a product. There's nothing redeeming about this kind of villain. And in these kind of stories, you do need that. It is a children's story. There's, It's the easiest way to convey a lesson. I was almost taken aback, though, as an adult reading like how vicious he was that they allowed this much into the story for children, considering how everything else is pretty tame, both verbally and physically abusive he can be. But then again, like that character is just so well written in the sense like he's very vivid, even if he's a bit of a two bit villain. But I still I was still interested in him, in him as a character. Yeah, I found a piece on Bustle called Eight Times the American Girl Books Ruined Your Childhood. And one of the items that they broke out is when Jiggy Nye abused his horses. And here's how they describe Jiggy Nye. They say, Jiggy Nye, man, he's the primary villain of Meet Felicity, and he does not treat his horses with respect. If you remember anything about Felicity, it's probably that she, one, has a horse, and two, has something to do with the Revolutionary War, maybe? Well, she gets her horse by rescuing it from the clutches of Jiggy Nye, who lets his animals starve outside in the cold. He threatens to kill his horse, Penny, if Felicity keeps hanging around his animals, which just seems like a misguided attempt at revenge. Which I think is true. A good sort of brief depiction and summary of him. There's like a lot of pages. I mean, sort of when you look at the the overall length of this book, the amount of pages that Felicity spends sneaking out to see Penny is substantial. It's probably like a third of the book that we're just like reading about these different encounters that she's having with Penny. And then um, the book kind of comes to its climax when Felicity's like, I'm sick of keeping secrets. I'm just going to bring Penny home and like tell my family what I've been doing. And she sort of like proudly parades Penny back to the house and is like, oh, dad, well, like I just listened to what Jiggy and I said. I learned to ride her so we can keep her, right? And then, of course, is like this moral lesson from the dad who I appreciate makes very clear that like he doesn't have any respect for Jiggy and I. Like I would have been really frustrated if Felicity's parents were like, oh, well, you know, you need to respect Jiggy and I because like he's a grown up. They make it very clear that they don't approve of the way that Jiggy and I lives his life and that they really like don't want their children to look up to him in any way but they're also like yeah but this is wrong and this is also a bad and dangerous idea because Jiggy and I is going to kill you and then she has this kind of cool moment with her dad where she talks about how she feels like all the work that she put into tame Penny is for nothing because she like isn't getting anything out of it anyway her dad says it is never wrong to try to earn something you love indeed tis only wrong not to try you hoped for something and you put hard work behind your hope I can only be proud of a daughter who can do that and I thought that was like a really sweet moment and sort of like a nice moment of like you're not always going to win you're not always going to get what you want but at least you put in the work and the time that's a lesson that I'm still working on as an adult same I do appreciate how um considerate her parents are of her as just as an individual because so often we see um either in movies or tv shows set during uh colonial times or even later in Victorian times maybe even present day it's just like the girl is just usually told even by her parents in front of other people to shut up and be quiet and like you're embarrassing us and it's like you should mind your own place um whereas they were like no you can't speak to our daughter that way I mean they do say well you can't take the horse which okay is fair it's not her horse although I it was nice that Nan actually stuck six-year-old Nan was stuck up for her sister and was like no I heard you say that too so it was like Nan did have a role to play in that regard I'd be curious to see what their relationship would be like even post this series like in terms just like a sisterly relationship yeah I like this whole family the more we talk about it I think I'm really liking their dynamic and like the the relationship that the parents are trying to build 
with their children. It does seem very respectful, especially as you said, for this time period. Yeah. It's almost like they're Quakers, but they're not Quakers. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Totally. So in the end, Felicity decides that even though she is not going to be able to have Penny, she needs to free her. And there's this really dramatic scene where like she sneaks out and she tries to ride her to freedom, like ride her into the woods. And then she falls off the horse and Penny turns around as Felicity's lying on the ground. And Felicity's like, no, like keep going, keep going. Um, And then Penny runs off into the woods. I think she comes back though, because I feel like Penny ends up being a bigger part of the series. I had the Penny horse. So she must be present beyond this one book. I agree, because I was a little surprised when she ran away at the end. I was like, I thought that she went back and like they kept her. So I'm convinced it's probably in the Felicity Saves the Day book, uh, because those are the Saves the Day books are always the ones set in the summertime. Right. And I think that has a connection, something to do with when Ben was on the run, too. I can't remember. See, now I just have to, I guess, get the whole series. I know. We need to read the whole thing. <laughs> I can't believe they got us like 30 years later. It's like, I'm still willing to read this. We're hooked. We just need like a snow day and then we can really get into them. Yeah. So the one other thing that I really liked about this piece where Felicity frees Penny is she she goes back and she says to Ben, Penny freed herself as a feminist and as somebody who's hoping that young girls are reading books that sort of inspire a feminist spirit. I liked that Felicity, who is somebody grappling with like the constraints of her own gender and like the way people perceive her in her community, she like gave this horse agency, this horse that I think she sees as representative of herself. She's like, no, like maybe I opened the gate for you, but you freed yourself. So maybe that's reading into it a little bit more than I should, but I really liked that. And I starred that all over the page. That I don't think is reading too much at all. Now that you said that and highlighted that line, I think that 100% defends your interpretation that Penny, who is a female horse, represents Felicity as well. Yeah, I think they're one and the same. And they even have like the same color hair. Also a good point. Also a good point. Mind blown. Mind blown. So on the whole, how has this experience of reading Meet Felicity measured up to your memories of reading it as a kid? Do you think the book has held up or has it disappointed you? I am pleasantly surprised that I think the book held up. I was really expecting there to be much more problematic excerpts, whether it be along racial lines or gender lines. And no, I like at least not in Meet Felicity, I thought. And really, there is no one of color in the first book. So it's hard to make a judgment call on that. But at least in terms of gender, uh, I was like, no, I would definitely read this book to both boys and girls, because I don't think American girls books, especially considering their historical fiction, don't have to be just for girls. I think the stories are so good that I think anyone would enjoy reading them. I agree. And I'm so glad that this experience has not ruined your Felicity memories other than Meet Felicity. Is there anything you've been reading lately that you love and would recommend to our SSR listeners? Oh, I'm always reading so many books. This is why I keep track of everything on Goodreads. I had been on a terror reading a bunch of Star Wars books over the holidays because of the movie, but I had to get out of that rut. So I I went back to some more serious fiction, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. I read The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. And it was on a bunch of best of 2019 lists. Um, Anne Patchett is just such a phenomenal writer and all her books are incredible. This one was about um, a brother and sister relationship over the course of, say, like the 50s through the 80s. And they live in this 
magnificent, but like very postmodern kind of unbelievable, hard to imagine looking house in the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was just, just basically a family story, which is what Ann Patchett is so good at. Otherwise, um, on audiobook, I'm listening to uh, The Book of Eating by Adam Platt. He's the uh, food critic at Grub Street, and he used to host his own podcast for Grub Street as well. So he's just such a good storyteller, especially when it comes to food. So Cool. I will include links to both of those titles in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Meet Felicity on Thrift Books, so that if you want the original cover, you can get that. Rachel, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.